Good morning, and welcome to the House of the Lord. And good morning to those of you listening and watching online also. I'm Pastor David Nigro, filling in for Pastor Rick this morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, being verses 25 through 27. The title of this morning's message is The Great Divide. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's attracting large crowds. They wanted to hear his words, and they were hoping to see his miracles. But did they really want to follow after him? Were they willing to forsake what was dearest to them in order to be one of his disciples? In the verses that I just read, Jesus didn't simply include everyone present in the crowd as his disciples because they were there. He gives them a standard that is required in order to be his disciples. And the cost of that standard is very high. The cost is one where everyone and everything else in life must take second place to him. In the end, a few of those present will truly be his followers. Showing us that God makes a distinction between who will enter the kingdom of God and who will not. These words of Jesus, they're contrary to the doctrine of the world as of late, where everyone must be accepted and included regardless. Now, if you've been a part of the workplace in the last 10 plus years, then you're familiar with the terms diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is a movement that has really exploded culturally, I'd say, in the last decade or so. Now, it has its roots in the 1960s, Uh, civil rights movement when labor laws were changed, and it was designed with the intent of preventing prejudices. Now, on the surface, these words, they create an image of goodness and of fairness and embracing the many differences among peoples, and which on the basis of gender and race and ethnicity, I certainly can agree with that. I mean, after all, God is the author of diversity in creation, and we are commanded to love one another as we love ourselves. Now, to most people who still understand these three words according to their traditional meanings, we'd quickly agree with policies that, you know, reinforce them in the workplace. However, upon closer inspection of what these terms truly mean today, it reveals something different. And while they may sound benign or enlightening, in reality, they have a new and and specific meaning with a particular bent. For instance, the Word diversity now is used as a descriptor for preferred demographic groups. So instead of all peoples making up diversity, it really means particular groups or what define diversity. The term equity has been stretched and twisted, and it denies even the most basic differences that are between people. And inclusion once was an innocent term that, you know, it intended to mean that all are permitted to attain membership in a group according to that group's rules. But now it implies proportionate representation, even if traditional standards for membership must be relaxed or 
altered to achieve this representation. This ideology, and it is an ideology, and if you bear with me, I will uh, bear, I will bring that out a little bit more as we go. Uh, you know, it, it denies the traditional meanings of those three words we spoke about. Now, for instance, diversity has been extended to include not only gender and race and ethnicity, but now it's declared gender, and it is uh, also sexual orientation, things that we are not born with. Now, you're probably asking why I'm speaking about this from the pulpit this morning. Well, it's because this has a much greater impact than simply in the workplace. It has made its way into educational institutions, and it's made its way into houses of worship. And if you stick with me, I'll show you why this new religion is another work of the enemy and how it opposes biblical doctrine, and it is a threat to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, generally speaking, one of the ways this new religion exerts itself is through mandatory sensitivity training. It's designed to reshape people's views of those in the preferred groups, particularly of gender and sexual orientation. Now, if someone's religious beliefs are in opposition to these viewpoints, it's imposed on them anyway. And interestingly, I have never been to sensitivity training towards Christians. Even though Christians are the largest persecuted people group in the world. Go figure. So now if you say anything that causes someone in that preferred demographic to be offended, it's considered something to be disciplined for, at least in the workplace. And some even consider it hate speech. So simply by disagreeing openly about someone else's behavior, choices, or perhaps beliefs, uh, it goes against this ideology of embracing, valuing, accepting, and celebrating everything except righteousness. Never mind that our First Amendment rights in this nation give us both freedom of religion and freedom of speech. It doesn't matter to them. It's irrelevant. And who among those that follow this ideology decide what's acceptable speech, what I can say or what I cannot say? And how do they enforce this? Well, typically speaking, uh, this is a part of every corporation and even the government now. And so it is mandated, at least the training is, and the obedience to this by its HR department. So that way you can be disciplined with the threat of your livelihood or worse if you don't embrace and practice this new religion. Essentially, it's the new ecumenism. It's not of Christianity per se, but it's an ideological globalization. Now, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Globalization, really, it's a term used to describe how trade and Technology have made the world into a more connected and interdependent place, but it, it goes beyond that. It also captures in its scope uh, the economic and social changes that have come about as a result. Now, I want to read you something. This is an excerpt from uh, a website called theglobalist.com, and uh, this is a quote from them. Social and cultural globalism involves movements of ideas, information, images, and of people who, of course, carry ideas and information with them. Examples include the movement of religions or the diffusion of scientific knowledge. In the past, social globalism has often followed military and economic globalism. However, in the current era, social and cultural globalization is driven by the Internet, which reduces costs and globalizes communications, making the flow of ideas increasingly independent of other forms of globalization. 
And there it is. It's a global unity of thought. And in this time, this latest religion will you know, tell us what we must believe, what we're allowed to say, and eventually how we're able to worship. These are building blocks of the eventual one-world apostate church of the end times. Now, not that I watch uh, the TV show Dr. Phil, and this isn't an endorsement of Dr. Phil, but it was an interesting article. It popped up in the news, and and so um, I did look at it. And um, here's what I found. Dr. Phil is talking, uh, as the subject matter is, uh, comedians. Are are, are they allowed to say what they want to say when they're doing their stand-up routines. And so they asked the audience this question, are they allowed to say what they want to? And one of the members of the audience sums up this ideology, if you will, um, with this. She says, it's no longer acceptable to say things that are hurtful. People need to be accountable for what they say. Now, this should be very disturbing to all of us because this kind of rhetoric, it threatens the very gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, what if you share the gospel, which in and of itself can be offensive, and someone is now offended? Are you now to be held accountable for that? Because you told them that they are a sinner and that God says that they are in judgment apart from Jesus Christ. If that is offensive to them, have you now crossed a line? According to this group, yes, indeed you have. You know, Jesus had to deal with those in his day who demanded he be held accountable also for the things he was saying. What Jesus said and did were infuriating those who had the power and influence in his day. And they wouldn't tolerate it either. John 5, 16 through 19. Now, Jesus has healed someone and uh, they've taken issue with it in part because it's the Sabbath. And so, for this reason, we read that the Jews persecuted Jesus, and they sought to kill him. He had done these things on the Sabbath, but Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making him equal with God. So it didn't matter that what Jesus was saying was true, that he just proved it in that he had healed someone that nobody but God could have done. And yet, that didn't matter. They didn't want him saying it. They didn't want him speaking at all. And so they wanted to kill him. Because after all, death is the ultimate censorship, is it not? Well, the goal of the Jews and the devil at that time was to silence our Lord, but it didn't work because he rose again. And so, despite their best efforts. Now, as I previously, I had previously said to you that the you know, latest ideology here demands that we accept, embrace, and celebrate everything but righteousness. Because, you see, righteousness is offensive to sinners. It is. And you know what? Offensiveness is not allowed. That is what this new doctrine preaches. Therefore, righteousness is not allowed under this new religion because it causes division and not unity. Now, here is where the title of this morning's message comes into play. Jesus understood that choosing him 
was going to be a division. It was going to bring division about. Because choosing him is choosing righteousness. And this is offensive. Turn with me to chapter 10 of Matthew, verse 34 this morning. Jesus is speaking here and he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. In the context of what Jesus is speaking about, the sword is symbolic of division. He tells us plainly that choosing him, which is choosing righteousness, will bring about division. And that it may very well divide the deepest and most important relationships we have, and that of our family. Listen to what he says in verses 35 through 37 of this chapter. He says, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Does this sound harsh to you? I mean, considering how much we love our children and our parents and our spouses, yet Jesus says that you better love me more than you love them. You better choose me over them. How many people have come to that place where they had a choice to make? They've been recipients of the gospel. But if they accept Christ, their family will be against them. And this becomes that point of division. And then it it becomes a matter of what is it that they choose? Do they choose Christ? Do they choose peace and harmony in the family? God says, you better choose me. Because in the end, we will not stand before God alongside our family. We will stand before God individually. And God knows this. And so, if that cost is family, and he knows, the Lord knows what family means to us. That's why the example is given. Then, that's what it must be. You must choose him. And if we decide to keep peace, preserving unity, well and we don't choose him, then what? An eternity of judgment. Now, this is the great divide. You know, God who has created all that is seen and unseen, he makes a clear distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, between the clean and the unclean, between the unholy and the holy, between the wheat and the chaff, between the sheep and the goats, and between the believers And the unbelievers. He makes a distinction. He will not include everyone in his kingdom simply because mankind thinks that this is the definition of love or of being inclusive. Let me read to you two sections of scripture this morning where this bears out. Matthew 25, this is verses 31 through 34. Jesus is speaking here and he says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from the other. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, 
And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then I want to read to you, also in God making a distinction. This is from John's revelation of Jesus Christ, and this is chapter 20. Verses 11 through 15. This is the great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, these verses, they are contrary to this new religion, which demands acceptance and inclusivity of everyone. You see, what they teach is that everyone must be included because everyone has value. And while everyone may have value in the workplace, it doesn't translate to the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. This concept of inclusivity is not the same for God. And while God certainly places an extremely high value on every soul, because he has come to die for the sake of every soul. But he will not compromise on holiness. He's not going to do that. This is the express reason he had to come, to go to the cross, that he might provide a recompense for sin. It was the only way. And the application of this payment, the redemption of one's soul, can only come through individual repentance and personal trust in Jesus Christ. And that is for the salvation of that individual's soul. And the world finds this offensive. But it's nothing new. I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. The Apostle Paul here writing, he says this regarding the gospel. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This latest ideology has crept into the church, and you know many no longer preach about sin. They no longer preach against sinful practices. They no longer hold accountable those who say they are Christians, but they are not living in accordance with God's word. No, they've taken up a different banner, one of inclusion, claiming that God's love requires acceptance of everyone. Well, God desires everyone, but he doesn't simply accept them. There's only one way, and we're going we're gonna to get to that in a minute. But let me give you some of God's Biblical statements on inclusivity. Romans three ten through 12. There is none righteous, 
No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And then Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So these verses are absolutely inclusive of everyone, aren't they? But listen, in this new religion, they, they can't be accepted as truth because they don't affirm everyone in the positive. God cannot declare everyone a sinner that is awaiting judgment apart from Jesus Christ. They won't tolerate that. And God cannot declare the celebrated practices of perversity as sinful either. This indoctrination into this new religion is one of the reasons I believe many young people are rejecting the true gospel. I think it's why they clench their teeth and shake their fists at the very words of God. How dare God accuse them of being a sinner, not being a good person? How can he be loving and yet not accept them for who they are? See, the world preaches these things in all these different arenas. And so when the true gospel is given, it seems so harsh. It seems so against everything that is being taught and said. It's everything that's on the internet. Love everybody, unity, acceptance, so forth and so on. God does love everyone, so much so. He came to the cross. So the message of the gospel is one of acceptance, but it's on God's terms. Listen to this. This is a familiar verse to all of us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God's inclusiveness. Everyone, anyone who accepts the gospel has everlasting life in Christ. It's what he wants. You know, Peter addressed the scoffers of his day. They didn't believe God's wrath was going to come upon man because it had been so long. And, you know, after all, it didn't happen, so it's not going to happen. And so Peter writes this in 2 Peter 3.9. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's invitation for salvation is inclusive of everyone. His method, however, is exclusively through Jesus Christ. This is also unacceptable to this latest doctrine. I mean, after all, how can God declare there's no other way outside of Jesus Christ? That is not inclusive, clearly. And they're right, because in this sense, God is exclusive. The method in which to gain entrance to the kingdom of God is Jesus Christ. And there is no other. Jesus said this very thing in John 14, 6. And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Well, do you believe that this morning, or is that just too exclusive? I believe it. The Lord said it, and he meant it. And it just doesn't make any sense that he would come to a cross, suffer and die, if there was any other way. In fact, he said, Father, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. But there was no other way, and he knew that. But so that you and I would know it, there is no other way. This is harsh to the world, particularly of those who 
believe that this new doctrine should include everyone simply because it seems like the right thing. Well, God does want everybody. He desires everyone, but there will not be everyone in heaven, and we know this also. Listen to this. This is Jesus again speaking, Matthew seven thirteen through 14. He says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. The gate is narrow. Why? Do you think it's because God wants to limit how many can come in by it? No. I do not think that is why. I believe it is because it is exclusively through Jesus Christ. That is why the gate is narrow. Not because he wants to limit who's coming through. He also says difficult is the way. Well, why? I mean, the gospel is not difficult to understand. And in fact, we can't gain salvation through works, through our efforts. The only way we can have it is through grace. And so why is it difficult? Because following Jesus costs us something. And he knew this. And hear me when I say this. The closer that you want to follow Jesus, then the greater the cost. I want to look at a story of the rich young ruler, just as an example. Matthew nineteen sixteen through 22. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And so he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And so the young man said to him, Well, which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. But when the young man, he heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. For this young man, his possessions were what were blocking him from following closely after God. He wanted, it seemed, to follow after the Lord. He had been practicing so many of these things from his youth. But there was yet this inability to devote himself entirely to God. What was hindering him, the stumbling block for him in this particular case, was his wealth. And the Lord knew it. He knew it and he called him out on it. And so that young man wasn't ready. The the, The sword was falling upon his possessions and he wasn't ready to give them up, not for the Lord. That's not the case for everybody who has money, by the way. You, You shouldn't take that from this example. But in this case, that was what was holding him back. For so many others, there's a different lack in their life that holds them back, something that uh, keeps them from really being devoted to God, in some cases, choosing him. There's another place where the sword can cause division, and that's in one's own heart. 
Matthew 6, 24, Jesus speaking says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You just can't be devoted to two things equally. You can't. You cannot have equal loyalty to God and to someone or something else or equal love for God and yet for someone or something else. God requires that we hold him in preeminence, which is the first place. It is what is necessary if we are intending on worshiping him. And he is worth it. But this is the struggle for so many. And in fact, um, it is what oftentimes the sword does. It brings division even within the heart. And is it possible to serve two masters? It is not. In this case, the sword needs to divide so that we are found to be entirely devoted to the Lord. Now, this is also why it's important that a man and a woman are both believers before they're marrying. And this comes from 2 Corinthians six fourteen through 16. On this section of scripture, Paul is writing regarding relationships and particularly between believers and unbelievers, and the prohibitions thereof. And he writes this, he says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Oh my, this is certainly not inclusive. Why does the Bible command a believer not to be married to an unbeliever? I mean, what's the problem if they love one another? Well, there are some big problems with it. And that is simply that if they are bound together, there's going to be issues. Because if one is devoted to God and one is not, you can expect that it is going to be an issue. The example that is given here is that of a yoke, and it was a a farm implement where it would bind two animals together so that they could pull in unison. And that device that was really typically fashioned out of wood would go between the necks of the two and over the shoulders and bind them together. But if the yoke was unequal, if the animals, one larger, one smaller, you put that yoke on them, and it's uneven, there's discomfort to both the animals. And then they are ineffective at pulling in the direction that they're supposed to go. And so God gives this example because if we are bound to an unbeliever, it is going to be an issue. There's going to be problems. And there will be an issue usually between the, the individual who is a Christian and their relationship with the Lord. There's, there's an impact there most often. You will find it just doesn't work. And so God makes there a distinction also in the relationship. Now that relationship can extend to other kinds of things as well. It can go into you know, being bound to uh, an unbeliever in business where there too you are unequally yoked. It even extends to a place in its uh, meaning where a believer married to a believer can be unequally yoked in their devotion to God. And I have seen this. So, so for instance, 
you have uh, one spouse who is just entirely devoted to the Lord and is serving and is worshiping, and the other one, not so much. I had a guy who I worked with some years ago who would tell you he was a believer, but he was angry with his wife because she was, it seemed, always at the church, were his words. She was always doing something there. What she was doing was serving. And he found an issue with that because he wasn't as devoted to God as she was. And so he became bitter about her, the church, and even to some degree about the Lord because his wife, it seemed, was neglecting him. Now, I don't know that, you know, this was anything more than he just was a little jealous, if you will, of the time that she was there. And in that case, it was a problem even though he too would tell you he believes in God, he believes in Jesus Christ as his Savior. Well, yet there's a problem, because they're not equally yoked. In some ways, the divide that I am talking about this morning, you know, it can also be thought of uh, as a distinctiveness. So God has always expected his people to be different than those who don't belong to him. And I think this is supposed to be evident in how we live, uh, how we behave in our worship and in our treatment of others. This actually began by example in the Old Testament when God gave Israel the moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. Now, he gave the moral law to govern people's behaviors toward God and then also towards one another. But he gave the civil law to govern the everyday life among the people as this was, you know, guiding them on how they should interact in terms of a community. And then he gave them the ceremonial law and the sacrificial system as a foreshadowing to the coming of Christ, who would be the fulfillment of the law. But what he says here in Deuteronomy 14.2, and I've chosen the King James Version because I think it, it just gives a little bit better example of what I'm driving after here. We read this, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself, above all the nations that are upon the earth. You know, Israel was supposed to be an example to the other nations around her. And that was in a way that would point towards God. She was to be distinct in every aspect of life, in of worship, in of those things that were contrary to the world around them. And so that is not unlike it supposed to be with us as Christians. Our testimony, if you will, we're supposed to live differently from the world around us. We are supposed to keep from sin. We are supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. These are things that are to set us apart from those that are around us. Now, understand this. This division that we're talking about when choosing Jesus isn't in the context of us against them, unbelievers. And you you cannot take it that far. That is not what is meant. There are many things that we are supposed to be different and if you will, divided from when it comes to those that are unbelievers, but we are not against them. That's not why God left us here. And, and you know, there's, this isn't 
meant as a separatist mentality. And I think sometimes Christians, they take this kind of a viewpoint. So they'll have sort of a a compounding mentality, you know, because they don't associate with anybody that's not a Christian. Um, They come to church, they go home, all their friends are Christians, they have no contact, and even to some degree are deliberately um, just isolating themselves from the world as a protection is what they'll tell you. Well, that's not what, what Christ did when he was here, is it? I, didn't, I don't think so. I mean, I read the Bible and it tells me he ate with sinners and tax collectors. Which one of you is going to invite an IRS agent for dinner? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you can't be separate to the point where you have no contact with unbelievers. How will you witness to them? How will you share the love of God with them? We're not against them. Not in that sense where, you know, it's a division to have as an enemy. They are not our enemy. God loves them. And our, his heart is towards them. But there are, there are limitations to that love. And he has set them. So, be careful now. Uh, you know, don't get onto the road of self-righteousness. It's just easy to do. You know, you can look at everyone else around you and you can make comparisons and you can find faults in them and you can feel better about yourself. But what is that? I mean, we're no better than the unbeliever. We're just better off. And that, not because of ourselves, this is entirely because of Christ. And so... We have no right to be self-righteous. There's nothing self-righteous about us. Our righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. So, be careful. And listen, to, you know, this is another thing, and, and I have to guard against this myself. Be careful the way news sites pit everybody against the other side. Right? You go to a, con- a conservative site, and they're pitted against the, the left wing, and vice versa. And, and I want to let you know this right off the bat it you know it is um being being conservative is not synonymous with being christian being christ-like is synonymous with being christian and those two things don't add up i've known a lot of conservatives in my lifetime have nothing to do with jesus and so while we may be in agreement on political things or about conservative issues we're not in agreement when it comes to christ and so don't be confused in that. And don't, don't let them pit you against others. Now, I should point out that when Jesus said in Matthew 10.34 that he didn't come to bring peace, he didn't mean between God and man. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is peace towards man. And it provides the only way to remove that enmity which exists between sinful man and God. Paul tells us this in Romans 5.1. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, peace with God doesn't always translate to peace with others. The moment we side with Jesus, um, the moment we take a stand, it offends others. There's just no way around it. And as a Christian, you know, how do I reach those who I offend? And I give this a lot of thought because, well, I offend a lot of people. Not intentionally, but I think, you know, just if you're a Christian and you're openly uh, talking about the Lord or just living as a Christian, you're going to offend people. 
And here's what I have found, that if you love people, genuinely love them, if you show them that love, you would be amazed at the difference that makes. And that over time, you know, and it can take time, even those who are staunchly against Christ, you would be surprised, but you'll very likely have an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. It is, it is amazing what love can do. But if you aren't willing to love them, chances are you won't get that chance. You won't get an opportunity to talk to them about the Lord. You know, um, understand that love in itself isn't the same as just approval. Okay, um, I don't necessarily agree with someone's choices or what they believe, but that doesn't mean I can't love them. And that is something that you must understand also in your dealing with other people. Because in the end, we are commanded to love them. Well, how do you, how do, you do that? I mean, driving is probably one of the biggest challenges, isn't it? Um, just take a little trip and see how well you do. I, I just recently went on a trip, and I'm not going to tell you how I did. <laughs> but I will say, you know, that the point is simply, people are hard to sometimes get along with, aren't they? But that's not really what God is talking about. He's talking about love, and love is a different thing when it comes to God. That unconditional love is just that. It's unconditional. You're not capable of it, and neither am I, on our own. Only God can do that in us. But he's given to you the Holy Spirit, and to me too. And through God doing that, he's given you the tools that you need to love other people. But you need to ask for help. At least that I found I, I do. I need help in loving others. But God's willing to give that. And listen to this. You know, there's, there's still an importance in all of this that you aren't afraid to speak the truth in love, knowing that it is going to be offensive. Because deceitful are the kisses of the enemy and faithful are the wounds of a friend. I've learned over the years that... Uh, you know, showing love isn't is capable of amazing things. And uh, sometimes, you know, you gotta you gotta recognize when you're casting pearl before swine, and when you maybe need to shake the dust off your feet and move on. Sometimes that's the case, also. But be led. Make sure that the the spirit is guiding you in that. You just don't make that decision on your own. And God will give you discernment on whether you should. Not waste your time, so to speak, which is what these verses are speaking about when it comes to sharing the gospel. Now, lastly, I'll say this. Be careful not to harden your heart, particularly towards those who are against you because of Jesus. Because that's not the heart of our Lord. And we're commanded, as I mentioned, to love others. It's a pretty high standard. Because that standard is how you love yourself. I mean, we don't have any issues loving on ourselves. I know that. And, um, well, nonetheless, God requires it of us. So ask him to help you with it. And remember this, you know, he is long-suffering, willing that none should perish. And that should be our heart also.
Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you, first of all, that you do make a distinction, but also, Lord, that you have been inclusive of an invitation to be saved from the sin in our lives, Lord, that separates us from you. And that invitation is to all. And Lord, if there's any this morning who have not given their life to Christ, uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, your spirit would be moving on their hearts. They simply need to ask you to repent of that sin and to ask you for salvation. And as a result, Lord, you promise that you will you will rescue them from the sin that would have them judged. And Lord, thank you again for your word this morning, which makes clear to us how we should live, Lord, how we should worship, and how we should love others. And this morning, Lord, I want to thank you for how you love us. There is no comparison. In Jesus' name, amen.